Hello and welcome to Ideas Without Borders, the University of Waterloo Engineers Without Borders podcast. Today we're going to be talking about how the mining sector can drive economic development. I'm Matthew, your host for this episode. I'm here with Jeff from the Mining Shared Value Initiative of Engineers Without Borders. How are you, Jeff? I'm great, thanks. So, could you tell us a little bit about what Mining Shared Value is? So, Mining Shared Value is a nonprofit initiative of Engineers Without Borders Canada. Uh, we started in 2012, and our entire focus is on pushing and, and helping the mining industry to increase local procurement of goods and services in the countries where mining uh, mining occurs. So helping and pushing mining companies to have better economic impacts where they operate. Okay, so you mentioned local procurement. Can you dive in a little bit more and tell me about what that means? Yeah, so local procurement, we mean by that essentially goods and services purchased by a mine site from external providers, right? So we're not talking about direct employees. Uh, We're talking about if a mining company buys uh, equipment from an external provider of equipment, uh, they might be buying a service from an external provider. And and there is a bit of uh, ambiguity there because some companies will actually hire people to do certain things that other companies will buy externally. So catering, for example, right? Catering could be Catering could be could be carried out by direct employees of a mining company, or they could buy services from a local company to provide that catering. So there's a bit of an overlap between employees and and uh, procurement. But uh, you know the key thing for procurement is it's goods and services purchased from external providers uh, to the mine. And what exactly was it that made you initially focus on local procurement? So uh, engineers of the borders Canada gave me a really amazing opportunity in 2012 to kind of explore what a project could look like in the mining sector because you know engineers of the borders wanted to get involved in mining in some way uh, obviously engineering being a big big part of mining but they didn't really where to go so i i got to start and kind of search search out issues and see where we could add value and there's all sorts of you know mining ngos as there is and some of them work with companies directly on the ground some of them work um you know, some of them are more advocates against mining, or maybe better to say advocates for responsible mining and that kind of thing. And so I basically found procurement as an, an issue where no one was really talking about it in a, in a systemic way. And procurement is the biggest economic impact of a mine site in dollar amount. It's usually about 50 to 70% of all payments made in country by a mine. So it's a huge economic lever for development. It's also a huge potential risk for, for problematic practices as well. So um, that's why we pick procurement as something we could add value to in terms of improving the overall impact of, of mining. So who exactly are the primary beneficiaries of local procurement practices? Uh, mining is a huge, huge activity. So you're talking a lot of, of things going on and that requires goods and services. And all those goods and services are opportunities for local businesses to make revenue, to employ people. I, I do think, you know, in, in many ways, that's sort of the short-term gain. The, the long-term gain is actually the opportunity to upskill people, right? If you if you come to a new country that doesn't have a very good industrial base, and you start buying locally, you can you can help local suppliers improve their skills and technologies, and and you know basically move up the value chain. And and you know, right now they might be supplying the mining sector, but in the long term, it would be great to get some of these mining suppliers supplying other sectors, right? If you can get a mining company to buy local uniforms from a, a supplier they've helped you know help build, that same supplier can then supply uniforms to 
uh, a local hospital, for example, right? And that's obviously in the news right now because of COVID. So, you know, it's, it's about economic development, right? Procurement offers the opportunity to create economic development using just lots of money in terms of spending. And this is how we can harness foreign direct investment to have more, more meaningful outcomes. What does the landscape look like right now? Are mining companies really focused on local procurement? Is it something they're pretty much just ignoring? So all mining companies are going to try to buy locally where they can, you know, by default, because of course things are cheaper to have locally than ship them from all over the world if they're available locally, right? So all companies are doing local procurement to some extent as it is in, in the same way they're doing local hiring. Um, but what they're often not doing is sort of building longer term plans to, to more meaningful build up suppliers, right? So, you know, they'll be buying local goods and services for things that are available in the country, but not a lot of companies are making big efforts to build up new suppliers of new products entirely for the country, right? So there is there there's a gap there and, and we've been trying to fill that. There's certainly lots of good good leadership provided by individual mine, mining companies and individual mine sites where they have done that, where they've really built up local suppliers. And now we're talking tens of millions of dollars are staying in the country that we're, we're not before. We're a bit early days in, in big changes. That said, things have really picked up in the last few years because mining host countries and communities want more benefits and they're demanding them. So we're seeing a lot more pressure on companies to do this and, and they're responding. And we're also seeing a lot of you know, pressure from, from investors and, and you know, civil society who also are, are concerned about a lack of positive economic impact. So you know, it, it, it's, it's getting better uh, a lot and, and you know, we're doing our part to, to speed that up. You somewhat touched on this already, but hypothetically, if I was an investor or someone working in a mining company, what incentive is there for me to procure local goods and services? Well, I mean, there's a few few reasons, and they, and really they really vary case by case. And some in some cases, you know, what you're really trying to do is lower your procurement cost because you maybe right now you're importing things from overseas, and that's incredibly costly. And you know, if you could have local suppliers uh, built up, it would be cheaper. So you know, there's a real bottom bottom line dollar amount equation there. But I would say, to more often the case, the incentive is good community relations good relations with governments. As I alluded to, companies are just being pressured left, right, and center to demonstrate better economic impacts. We're seeing all sorts of stalled projects that you know communities are concerned about and providing extra benefits for the community through procuring locally is a way they can build up positive relationships with, with communities and, and with governments. So I'd say that is probably the more, the bigger angle right now for, for why investors and why companies are, are focusing on procurement is, you know, they want to have what, you know, what we call a social license to operate, right? So you can have a mine can have a legal license to operate. They could have their permit and the government could say yes, but if the local community is going to blockade the mine once a week, um, that's not a sustainable situation, right? So, you know, the, to, to us, the real, in, in most cases, the real value is in, in the social license piece. Uh, but again, you know, if you're a long, if you're a mine with a long mine life, you're, you're going to save money big time by, by buying locally um, and building up local suppliers where you can. So it sounds to me like there's a lot of obvious benefits to local procurement. Now I have to wonder, given sustainability as a concept is not something that's necessarily new to the mining sector, why are we seeing a more recent emergence in pressure surrounding local, local procurement? I mean, I think there's a few reasons for that. I mean, one is that it's it's about pressure, right? I mean, 
companies move in response to pressure. And I would say that until about 10, 15 years ago, there wasn't a lot of pressure on mining companies to buy locally, right? I mean, it was just something that wasn't done that often. And, you know, you started to see a lot of pressure from Indigenous communities in, in Canada and Australia. They really kind of did a lot of work to pressure companies to have more economic benefits in their remote areas. That kind of got the industry talking about this a little more. And then Africa in particular, I think was really ground zero for this because in Africa, they had this giant commodity boom in the, in the 2000s, right? The, the Chinese led boom and tax revenue was through the roof. Prices of commodities were through the roof. And then, you know, then, it, then those prices went down and, and those tax revenues collapsed. And then people looked around and said, well, wait a second, what, what actual benefits do we have here, right? And we're not seeing transformation in these countries at all. And that really kind of made host countries, particularly in Africa, but not just Africa, realize, look, we need, we need to demand more of mining to, to create development. And that sort of, that pressure started. And, and like I say, you know, the more pressure, the more, the more activity from, from industry. And that's sort of how, how things have went. When you say local, I know the answer may not be cut and dry. In general, are we referring to national boundaries, regional boundaries? Because personally, when I think of a, a mine site, I often think of something way out in the middle of nowhere, miles from it, any nearby towns. What would mm -hmm. you use to define that? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one because local and national are, are used so often kind of interchangeably, right? And one, one country's local procurement, you know, they really mean national procurement, right? And then other, in other cases, local completely means local, local community, right? So for example, in Canada, um, you know, you're going to see when it comes to local procurement, the pressure is on buying locally from usually Indigenous communities near the mine in remote areas, right? There's not a lot of pressure from society in, in you know, Toronto for, for, for mining companies to buy more products from Ontario businesses in, in big cities, right? So, you know, the, the, what even the definition of local is, is very much subject to the local conditions and what people care about and what's politically uh, you know, important. I mean, it's interesting if you look at Australia and Canada, very similar countries in the sense of having indigenous populations, having mines in remote areas, but in Australia, local procurement from non-indigenous communities is actually a, a political issue. You see actual pressure from people in Western Australia, the state there actually saying, hey, you know, we need more jobs in procurement from, from mining. Um, from, from non-Indigenous communities. Whereas in Canada, you know, you rarely see much sort of public pressure on mining companies to buy more locally. So it is interesting what kind of, what ends up dictating what uh, local is defined by. Again, you know, we, we try to help mining companies define local in a way which creates the most benefits for, for host countries, but also creates the most benefits for themselves in terms of, you know, keeping people happy. So um, there's quite a, quite a lot of factors go into how a mining company will define local. Absolutely. And obviously, from all the different locations you mentioned, this is a really global issue. And uh, Mining Shared Value is a relatively small team with about with three people right now, correct? Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering, are you the only players in this space? Are there others involved in this advocacy space? I mean, we're the only players who only focus on this. There's a lot of other actors who have local procurement as one of their issues of many. And I think that's sort of why we've been able to have a lot of traction and why people, why people like us generally is because we only focus on local procurement so we don't get sidetracked. You know, a lot of other, a lot of other big NGOs, the local procurement might be one topic they focus on, 
but you know then a new new theme comes along and local prohibit slides and so i think that's sort of how we've built up a credibility by being really sort of focused on one issue um and you know everyone's doing their part to some extent and the world bank has program and they're one of our biggest partners um think tanks will often do studies on local procurement and you know what we're trying to do is bring it all together wow it's uh it's definitely a huge mandate i'm wondering uh within the envelope of local procurement you mentioned a few actors that you've worked with the world bank and uh some think tanks are there any uh really interesting projects that stand out or any uh big contracts you've worked on well i mean our our We've got a couple of big exciting projects. So, you know, one is the World Bank. Uh, it's called the Extractives Led Local Economic Diversification Community Practice. And, and Kyla DeWert, who you know was a former chapter member of the Queen's chapter of, of EWB, she does most of the leading on, on that one. And what we're trying to do there is essentially make an online community practice uh, and resource library for this topic and bring out the whole world of local procurement into one online platform so that governments can get good policy advice and, and uh, mining companies can get good practice advice. So it's sort of an online library. And, you know, again, in, in terms of systems change, we're, we're trying to empower the entire system to improve their, their practices. And then I think the other really exciting project is called the Mining Local Procurement Reporting Mechanism, where we're trying to get all the mine sites in the world to provide the same information to, to everybody on their procurement. So, Right now, it's hard to find out much about mining companies and how much they buy, what they buy, how they buy it. And we're trying to essentially push all companies to provide the same set of information so that we can you know, essentially empower everybody uh, from local suppliers to host country governments to a local chamber of commerce, for example. So um, the LPRM is now being used by four mining companies. Uh, actually, all four of them are, are based in Canada. Um, and we're pretty excited about next year, hopefully, you know, grabbing another five or, or so next year. So those are a couple of our big projects. Wow, that's awesome. And uh, obviously a mining company is uh, generally much more than a mine site. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean mining companies are, are definitely, you know, the, the hole in the ground, or, the, or which can be an open, open pit or it can be underground through kind of a shaft. Um, but you obviously have a large infrastructure around that. You've got a camp where workers where workers live. Um, you'll have some form of processing. So some, you know, you, you basically have the, the ore comes out of the ground and then it gets broken up. And then, you know, different minerals have different processing methods. And then some some minerals even have some more, some processing where once you've got the, the minerals out of the, the rock, you actually do some further processing. And, and sometimes that happens on on site. So it, there's a big range. Um, whereas, you know, you know, diamonds, you, you get the diamonds up the ground and then you, you basically ship them raw somewhere else and they get polished and cut in a completely different place. So there's a big kind of range in, in how mining works and, and how it's set up. Um, but there's a huge sort of network of, of goods and services around them. So obviously you've had a ton of exposure to both the mining industry and the economic development sphere. You mentioned that Engineers Without Borders had initially prompted you to start looking into this for people that are interested in getting into the space, what's your background that led you to this sort of work? I mean, I wouldn't say I have a huge knowledge of mining because, you know, I'm not, I'm not an engineer and I don't have the sort of technical mining background, uh, but I've sort of picked up what, what I can to sort of understand the, the process is better. But um, my background is in international development. So I did my undergrad at Simon Fraser in, in, uh, in Vancouver. 
uh, in political science, and then I did my master's uh, in international development at uh, LSE in, in London. Um, so, you know, economic development, I mean, trade stuff, I've, I've always been fascinated by that kind of thing. I did uh, a fair trade organization in Vancouver. Uh, it was my first kind of NGO job, I suppose, and I just did it for volunteering. And then um, I did my master's dissertation on Canadian mining, corporate social responsibility, and, and its relevance for economic development. And that's sort of what led me back to EWB. And once starting with uh, EWB and getting mining shared value to, to get some traction, what were some of the big obstacles along the way or any unexpected or ridiculous challenges you may have faced trying to get the organization really off the ground? I mean, funding is tough. Funding is a, is a battle now. It's always been a battle. Uh, I, I would say that, we, you know, on one hand, we had a lot of advantages being in Toronto because Canada is this mining capital. I was able to meet with lots of mining companies, right? And Ottawa being a, a potential funder for us in some cases, um, Ottawa isn't too far from Toronto. So that's really helped. But Canada on the whole is a very unsophisticated international development place, right? There's not a lot of understanding of the role of the private sector in development in a sophisticated way in other countries. And so getting kind of funding to do a project to kind of help economic development is not particularly easy unless you're doing some kind of on the ground sort of, you know, if you're, if you're holding the hands of businesses doing SME development, which is important, uh, there's funding for that. Um, but there's not a lot of funding for kind of the think tanky kind of advocacy work we do. So that's been a, a, a big challenge. And, and I, I mean, really, it's, it's our biggest challenge, I think, is to sort of sustain the economic positive impacts we're creating and, and still be able to, to pay salaries, right? So that, that's probably the biggest challenge. As a country, Canada, uh, what, in your opinion, is Canada doing wrong? What models should the country be following to, to increase its impact potential in the international development space? I just think that Canada in general, and this isn't even just international development, there's a big kind of simple economic activity equals jobs kind of equation in people's minds, right? If you hear the discourse in the public and in, in the newspaper, it's very much, you know, you can't shut down this plant because it'll, it'll, we'll lose jobs, but there's very little actual sort of nuance of what kind of jobs different kinds of economic activity create, right? So you end up with this sort of very simplistic idea that if Canada invests in another country, it automatically equals jobs. And that's just not the case, right? There's a much more complicated relationship between FDI, foreign direct investment, and, and jobs and, and scaling. So, you know, when you're trying to get funding to do a project to help sort of, you know, help a country like say Burkina Faso, get better economic development, there's just not a lot of understanding of the kind of real industrial strategy and, and that kind of thing um, that is needed to make development happen. And, and a lot of Canada's aid still to this day, and I mean, I, would, I, I don't know if it's most, but it certainly seems to be most of Canada's aid still is focused on symptoms, right? Giving out, helping give services out, you know, helping helping you know the the feminist international assistance policy it's obviously great but it's very much focusing on sort of helping women after the fact as opposed to helping the government be able to help women on their own right it's it's not helping the governments build up their countries to the point where they don't need the help on the the services right so i think that's 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 a big part of it for a lot of your projects i get the sense you've gone international for funding uh, rather than seeking out funding in canada 
Mm -hmm. Are there any examples of uh, projects that have been funded by other countries? Yeah, I mean, our biggest funder in the last couple of years has been the World Bank, which is obviously based in, in Washington, D.C., although the, it should be noted the Canadian government does chip into the fund at the World Bank that we, we draw from. Um, so in that way, Canada does help us. The GIZ, the German Development Agency um, in Germany, is, is, is uh, been a big supporter of us. Uh, a handful of NGOs from, from everywhere, from South Africa to London, have, have uh, purchased contracts from us in terms of, of research. So big range. I mean, I, definitely I would say that most of our funding has come in one way or another from you know, Germany uh, or Washington, D.C. Uh, or London. Well, I'm glad to see uh, the organization receives support from around the world. On a lighter note, maybe, uh, what, are, what has been your favorite part of running Mining Shared Value? Uh, I mean, there's, there's the lighter element and there's the more kind of serious one. I mean, I, I think the, the ability to create impact has been, been amazing. I mean, it's been, it's been pretty amazing to see our small team, and our team has never been more than five or six people, um, actually telling mining companies what to do and them doing it. Right? I mean, some of these mining companies are in the billions of dollars in size, and yet they're using our tool, for example, in, in case of the LPRM. Um, you know, it's it's quite remarkable. To Just today I had a, a meeting with Shell, and I mean, Shell is one of the biggest companies in the world, and, and uh, even though they're not mining, you know, we're trying to push oil and gas companies to do better as well, and they were, you know, all ears to our ideas, and that, that's really exciting in terms of you know, a leverage point for improving people's lives. And then uh, on the lighter side, you know, I, I, can't, I can't get enough of travel. So I, it's, I get to go, I get to visit European capitals um, all the time for events, you know, and then now I'm obviously, I'm living in, in England, um, but you know, getting to go to Paris and Amsterdam and Geneva and all these places for, for events, conferences is really exciting. And then, and then on top of that, I get to go to this, complete complete random mix of countries for mining you know where mining happens i've been to i've been to albania i've been to kyrgyzstan been to south africa i've been in namibia um with this job i mean you know any uh, ecuador um so you know you get to go to a lot of interesting places and, and i get to see a lot of the world that, that no one else does because i'm seeing a mine in the middle of nowhere in, in rural rural namibia for example right so it's really exciting Wow. So um, in any situations where you've been, I guess, as you said, out in the middle of nowhere, have you encountered any scary situations? Uh, I wouldn't say I've been in any, uh, any, any scary situation I've been in. I put myself there. I've, I've never been there because of a, from a mine, because the mines are, are very, um, mining companies are very safety conscious. All right. I love the, uh, <laughs> the accepting personal responsibility for any ridiculous situations you've been in. So I guess just on a final note, what's your vision for the future of Mining Shared Value? What does continuing to make a difference look like? Where would you like to take the organization? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we want to make the mining local procurement reporting mechanism the global standard. You know, we want, to, we want to change the world with that thing in terms of we want to make it so that the entire mining world is, is getting this issue right because they're being informed and because there's transparency. So that's sort of the that's the, the kind of real big goal. And then, and then, you know, with the World Bank work, we want to make it so that host country governments are empowered to make the right decision, right? Our, our, right now, you get a, a government in, 
in Africa or, or Latin America, and uh, they'll be upgrading their mining law without a full. Often they'll be they'll be upgrading their mining laws without a full, you know, information on on how to do this right. And so if we can, if we can play a small role in, in empowering those governments to do a better job on this, that's you know that's a, a exactly what we want to do. So, you know, we want to we want to change the system of mining in a permanent way so that these things are kind of happening without us even being directly involved, you know, so systems change. That's, uh, that's certainly really inspirational. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jeff. It was a pleasure having you, and I've certainly learned a lot. Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Ideas Without Borders, the University of Waterloo Engineers Without Borders podcast.